Well, it is a pleasure to be with you. I um, was the excited one saying good morning and saying that I felt good. But to be honest with you, it has been a crazy couple weeks. We just finished our uh, what we call Rock the Block in West Lancaster. It's our outreach VBS. So we actually do it in a park for three days. And our last night was this last Friday. And then my daughter wants to be uh, the next Olympic cross-country runner. So Saturday morning, we woke up after a late night with our VBS, and we went and ran two miles and then celebrated my mom's birthday. So it's been a crazy couple weeks for us as well. We had the men's retreat before that that I led in Shaver Lake. But I'm here by the grace of God and excited to be with you guys. And um, we will be in Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. So if you have your Bible... And I hope you do. You can go and turn to Colossians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's this nifty thing called a cell phone. And I only want to see the cell phone if you're actually on your Bible. If you're playing Pokemon Go, just put it away. And are you playing Pokemon Go there in the back? Ushers, can we grab that guy right there and confiscate his phone? But um, you can download the version Bible app and you can use that as well. And if you don't have a cell phone, I commend you for holding out as a fellow Luddite trying to go against the grain of the culture. You can turn to the person next to you who has a Bible, and I would encourage you, if you have one, look around for somebody who needs to read along and be willing to share it with them. I worked at um, uh, Radio Shack in college, and I swore when I got the job that I would never have a cell phone. Isn't that funny? That just kind of dates me, right? Like I was, I got that job right before the cell phone explosion. I was like, man, we don't need those things. You know, now nobody has a phone hanging on their wall in the kitchen anymore. Everybody just has a cell phone. So I've sold out, but uh, hopefully some of you are not giving in to the pressures of Pokemon Go. I actually saw uh, this morning on Facebook a conversation between a, a, a White House, uh, you know, sort of like news briefer and uh, a reporter who was playing Pokemon Go as he was taking notes on the news brief. That's just terrible. This is like epidemic proportions here. Uh, check your heart. Be careful. Don't play Pokemon Go during important times while you're crossing the street, stuff like that. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and the sermon this morning is entitled, Watchful Missional Prayer. Watchful Missional Prayer. And the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae. He's writing this letter to them from prison, perhaps in Ephesus. Others think maybe he was imprisoned in Rome. But he is in prison writing to this church in Colossae that he has actually never visited himself uh, there was a man influenced by his, his ministry called Epaphras. He was influenced in Ephesus. And Epaphras is going back to his friends and family in Colossae, helping the church to be established. And Paul has heard of their newfound faith, and he wants to encourage this fledgling church. So let's read what he has to say to them about prayer. He says, starting in verse 2, "...continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving." At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the Apostle Paul here gives us a couple practical directions on how we should pray. But before I get to that, I'd like to go over the issue of why we should pray in the first place. About six months ago, we went into a short um, sermon series on prayer at Revive AV Christian Fellowship in Lancaster. And I started off that short series with the sermon called Why Pray? And I had four main points. And I just want to go over those main points with you so that I could establish in your hearts or rekindle a passion in your heart for prayer, understanding why it is that although God is all-powerful and has written the end from the beginning, we should pray. So number one, just in a, a quick survey of why the Bible says we should pray, number one, 
God has ordained prayer as a means of grace. He's ordained it as a means of grace. So, He's, in effect, blessed prayer. And in His sovereignty, in His power, said prayer is a way that I am going to minister grace to my people and to the world. Okay, So a means of grace is simply something that God has said, I'm going to use this thing, this item, this practice in order to minister grace. And prayer is one of those things. We read in Philippians that we shouldn't have anxiety, but we should come to God in prayer and that He'll give us peace as we begin to talk to Him about our difficulties and ask Him for help. Jesus says that uh, God is so good that if we ask for a fish, He's not going to give us a serpent. If we ask for bread, He's not going to give us a stone. So you can see that God is putting His seal of approval on this thing called prayer, and He's saying that when you pray, He's going to move. Maybe not the way you expect or the way that you want, but in His supreme wisdom, God is going to move and answer your prayer according to what He believes is best. So, since God has blessed it, since He's put His hand of approval, since He's put that seal on prayer, we should pray. There might be issues of the mystery of prayer that we still have, like, well, this is kind of interesting. God already knows what I'm going to ask. Why should I ask? I understand the mystery, But the sheer reality that Scripture tells us that God has ordained it as a means of grace means we should just do it. It's it's for our good. It's for our benefit. But secondly, it's for God's glory. Prayer brings God glory. And that's because as, as we pray the way Scripture has told us to pray, has prescribed prayer to be, we're supposed to pray in Jesus' name. And we're supposed to pray according to God's will. So we need to know God's word because it uh, represents his character. It shows us his will for the world. And it gives us an opportunity to then know how to pray. So we know his word. We, we begin to pray according to his word in his name, saying, you know, in Jesus' name. And, and it's Jesus who I'm praying to. And it's a, according to God's character. And when God moves and answers that prayer, He gets glory. We're not just praying to some nebulous God. We're not just going through some weird ritual that isn't ascribed to Jesus Himself. But we're praying according to His character, according to His will, in His name. And when God moves, it becomes a testimony of His greatness. We are able to say to people, hey, listen what Jesus did. Listen how He moved in a way that is synonymous with everything I've read in His Word. Right? We read His Word, we pray, we see God act and move, and it just validates His reality. It shows His power and His supremacy, and that He is so good that He fulfills His promises. That when we pray according to His will, He will move and He will answer. And so God gets the glory. Imagine a world where God just moved outside of our prayers. We could take glory for it all the time. God is just giving His people good all the time. So I'm not praying about my sermon. I'm not praying in the morning asking God to give me His heart of compassion for the people. You're not waking up in the morning and praying for the lost in the workplace where you're at, at school, where you're learning. You're just going and you've got the Midas touch because God is in everything that you're doing. And it would be so easy for us to take glory for that. To just go, man, I am just on fire. Like things are going well for me. But when we go through difficulties and we cry out to the Lord in Jesus' name according to His will and He moves, it brings humility and a recognition that it's God who is our help. That He's the King of kings. That He is the Lord of lords. That we are finite in our ability to make change in the world, but He is all-powerful and infinite and able to move in all circumstances and situations to fulfill His purpose. So prayer puts us in a position to remember that it's ultimately God who does good in our lives and in the world. Thirdly on why pray, 
Prayer builds our faith and teaches us reliance on God. Right? So, so first of all, in regards to building our faith, think about that situation where instead of God just kind of working outside of our prayers, we're praying and then He's moving to answer them. That builds our faith, right? We're crying out to God, relying on Him, asking Him for help in our dark times, in our difficult situations. And as we persevere through that, we see God lifting us up by His grace and answering those prayers in hindsight. Right? The, the time seems bleak. The time seems difficult. We're not sure what God would do or where He even is. But we cry out to Him in faith and reliance. And as we go through that situation and we look back, we can see the hand of God answering those prayers according to His supreme wisdom. And that builds our faith. So God has rigged prayer as a means to give us more faith, to begin to grow that mustard seed of our faith that we had on the day of our salvation into an entire plant of faith that is now influencing the world around us. But it also teaches us reliance, right? It teaches us we can't do it on our own, and we need God. The difficulties that we face, the trials and tribulations, sometimes just surmount in our lives to the point where we feel so inadequate And instead of God saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can do it. He says, come to me in prayer, right? Pray without ceasing. And as we begin to do that, we learn reliance in those situations. We learn to lean into him and trust him for our daily bread, for our seasonal needs, for our situations with our friends and in our workplace and our marriage with all of our family members we learn to rely on God as we pray and cry out for help. And fourth, prayer makes us active players, not passive fans. I tell our church all the time that God can do everything that He wants in this world on His own, but He has decided to work through us instead of around us. So God could do whatever He wants, But in his supreme wisdom, he has decided that he is going to work through his creation, not around it. He's not just going to be transcendent, but he's going to be transformational. So he is going to work through people, transforming them in order to impact their spheres of influence and the rest of the world. And so I I tell our church that there's two types of Christians. There's really only one type, biblically. But in our world that we see with our eyes, there's two types of Christians. There's followers and there's fans. Followers are the biblical type, but there's followers and there's fans. And a a fan is an exuberant admirer, right? They grab the, the banner of their team and they paint their face and they go to the game and they cheer, but they could have, you know, ten plates of nachos. They could, you know, have an entire, uh, you know, 40 of beer every hour during the game, right? They could be drunk out of their mind. They shouldn't be, but they could be and still be a fan, right? And in some spheres of the sports world, it's encouraged to do that, right? But a follower is an active player in what they admire, in what they look at and agree with and root for. A, a player is somebody who has to listen to their coach, has to follow the conditioning, and has to understand the playbook, and when the play is called, actually make sure that they're doing their part with that specific play. So you take that analogy with Christians and you go, those of us who are fans, we're like exuberant admirers, but we're not necessarily following the playbook of the coach, right? We've got our not of this world sticker on the back of our truck, right? We've got our Jesus tattoo in Hebrew, right? And and we say, man, Jesus' teachings are the best, but they're not impacting the way that we walk, Right? We agree with Him, but we live like the same son or daughter of hell that we were five years ago. And so, while a fan is an exuberant admirer of Jesus' teachings and His ways, they're not really allowing that to impact their heart. 
And I would just suggest that is a clear indication that you're actually not a biblical Christian. Now, the active player, though, is somebody who is recognizing what the coach has said, and they're opening their heart and their mind to it to be affected by it. Their condition begins to change, and they're increasing in health over time because they're following the prescriptions of the coach. And prayer helps ensure that we are a part of that growing process. Because we're now coming before the Lord and having a conversation with Him and needing to read the Word and and let our prayers be characterized and influenced by the truths of Scripture. And we're no longer this, this lone ranger sort of island human being in this world, but we're having to come before God and admit that we can't do it on our own and that we need His help. And so in that place, our relationship with God begins to grow. That intimacy begins to get kindled. And as we see here in Colossians chapter 4, if we're praying properly, He's going to begin to give us His heart. Our prayers won't just be characterized by, God, give me this, God, bless me in this way. But as we're reading His Word and His prescriptions for prayer, it's going to begin to change our heart and our mind to be more like Christ. And so, here we get to Colossians chapter 4 after we go over that brief survey of why we should pray in the first place. And we get to a bit more of the how. How should we pray? So, okay, I understand prayer is important, but what should our prayer be characterized by? And the Apostle Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And this word, continue steadfastly, is translated in the NIV, I think a bit more appropriately, but continue steadfastly uh, captures some of the essence of this original term that, that Paul writes, and it really just means devote yourselves in an ongoing manner. Okay, Devote yourselves in an ongoing ma- manner. There's this sense of devotion. Like, like we as Christians don't really like ritual and stuff like that, but the idea of devotion is like prayer should be an ongoing habit in your life. And it carries the same sense of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's that same sort of sense. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that your life and mine and the church in general should be characterized by prayer. You should be seen as a praying church. People should be able to come into your fellowship and see these people rely on the Lord. And I recognize their reliance by the way they cry out. That they are continually praying, not just in a fashion that is rote, but in a fashion that is heartfelt and based on deep dependency and need. The focus of Paul's exhortation here has to do with the how, as I said. And so the first point I would give you in regards to the how, as we look at this idea of continuing steadfastly in prayer, is simply take time to pray. I mean, just lurking behind this statement of continue steadfastly in prayer is the fact that you've got to do something to ensure that you're actually continuing steadfastly, right? Having a life characterized by prayer doesn't just happen naturally. I talk to our church and I tell them if the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, then we're going to have a tendency and a propensity to just kind of veer off in the wrong direction most of the time if we're not really trying, right? If if the flesh is weak and here we are in this fallen world separated from God on a pathway to redemption, on a pathway to be restored in our relationship with God, we've got to work and we've got to condition ourselves according to the way Scripture has prescribed so that we don't just kind of wander off into that weak, foolish, exuberant, admirer fashion that so many nominal Christians in the Western world have fallen into. So we've got to make sure that we take time to pray. 
And that we don't just pray while we go, that, that we would ensure that we don't neglect the significance of the morning. And this is actually a, a matter of prayer that is really important to me. I, I think for years, we as leaders have been very soft and gentle and easy about prayer time. You know, well, you know, some people pray as they go and some people, you know, they're better at praying in the evening. But I just want to suggest that we have um, an example of prayer in Scripture that is largely characterized by ensuring that you give the first fruits of your morning to God in prayer. To ensure that your heart and your mind are in the right place. Because if we have that tendency to just kind of naturally wander towards the things of the flesh, towards the things of the fallen man, to be influenced by the world, if we're not intentional about conditioning ourselves in the things of God, then we need to wake up and prepare ourselves to live the way that God has called us to live. If we truly need Him, and His grace is what is sufficient for us in our weakness, and as John 15 says, apart from Him we can do nothing, if we're not abiding in Him, we won't bear any fruit, then it is of extreme importance that we start off our day in prayer. Look at what David said in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3. He says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And what's so interesting about this is he says, In the morning I wake up and I cry out to you. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, what's interesting about David saying that he prepares a sacrifice for God in the morning, is you have to remember that this is the same David who said that he will not offer God as a sacrifice something that cost him nothing. Okay, so to him, a sacrifice to God is costly. It costs David something of great value and importance. Because remember, there was a gentleman who had offered King David some animals for his sacrifice. He had said to David in the Old Testament, he says, Hey David, I know you're planning on making this sacrifice and this offering to God. I have all these animals. Let me give them to you for that sacrifice. And he returns to the man and he says, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. Saying, I'm going to take that which I own. I'm going to take that which I value. And I'm going to sacrifice that. Because it's not just about giving God something. It's about breaking open your heart and pouring it out before God and having an intimacy with Him that says, you are worth everything else in my life. And so here He comes and says, in the morning I'm going to have that attitude with my sacrifice and I'm going to watch for you. And the reason I mention that story about the way that David thinks about sacrifice is because Largely, the reason why many of us pass up on taking time in the morning to pray is because of the great sacrifice that it costs us. It's hard. right? Some of us are going to have to wake up at 6 a.m. if we're doing this. right? It's a sacrifice between the snooze button and getting more sleep or waking up to have that time for the Lord. And you know, the flesh just wants to sleep. Right? I mean, think about how you could have like Sports Illustrated in front of you and you will read it for three hours starting at 10 o'clock at night. But if you open up scripture, you will be asleep in 15 minutes, right? Because the flesh hates the things of God, right? So when you wake up in the morning and and you hit the snooze button, it's because your natural propensity of the fallen man is just allowing you to go in that direction that isn't characterized by a higher sense of what is important. You're just kind of giving in, right? Because there's a costly sacrifice to that time in the morning. But David's life was characterized by that, and Jesus' was too. Remember how Jesus woke up early in the morning and went to a solitary place. He left his disciples behind and everything. He's like, man, God, you're more important than them even knowing where, where I am when they're cooking me some food in the morning. He's just taken off to a solitary place early in the morning. 
David says in Psalm 55, verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. So not only in the morning, but he's saying at lunchtime, in the evening as well. And what's so great about this is you see David relating prayer to his physical needs, right? We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner typically. And David is saying, like I need food, I need to pray to God. And we see this all throughout Scripture, right? Jesus actually says that He is the bread of life. And He says in John, He says, you know, unless you eat My flesh and you drink My blood, you will never see the kingdom of God. Talking about an intimacy with Him that is like devouring Him like food. Taking Him in and digesting Him and allowing Him to nourish our soul. You think about the fact that Spirit, in Greek, is the same word for breath, right? You're, he's, he's like the breath in the air. But at the same time, our breath is what allows us to get oxygen and keep living. And you see in Scripture the, the parallel between our physical needs and our spiritual needs then. That just like food is important for us to survive and oxygen is necessary for us to keep going, so too is our prayer time, our relationship with God, and our time in the Word. And you think about it, if somebody in the church was not eating and they were wasting away, you all wouldn't just be like, oh, we just need to grace that brother out. You know, we just need to grace him out. We shouldn't be too legalistic. Some people don't like eating. Right? We would be like, dude, you need to eat. Like, get some food in your body right now. What, what's going on, man? How can I help you? Are you depressed? You know? Like, what's going on? Do we need to take you to the hospital and see the doctor? Right? If someone's holding their breath and passing out, we're gonna consider it a catastrophic issue. So scripture relates to God like food and oxygen and says, if we're not abiding in Him, that we can't bear any fruit, that we can't do anything good, then why are we so soft and, and kind and gracious about prayer? We need to recognize the supreme importance of our intimacy with God. And that if we're continually passing it up, we are wasting away spiritually. We're not going to grow and bear fruit the way that God has destined us to. So brother, sister, take time to pray. And I know for some of you moms, you're probably going, hey, when I wake up in the morning, it's because my kid is screaming. Like, it's kind of hard to give God that first moment. And I understand that. I relate to that partially. My wife can relate to that fully, right? But what I encourage women to do, especially women who have children, is take your first available moment. So I get it, you've got to wake up with your child and care for their needs. But as that moment progresses, and you've kind of, you know, wound them up and set them in place, and they're playing on their own, or you're feeding them, or whatever it may be, take that first available moment and give it to God. And the idea behind this, besides just making sure that you're renewing your mind as soon as you can in the morning, making sure that, that you're allowing your heart to be yielded to God for the rest of your day. But what also is going on is you're kind of tithing your day. You're giving to God one of the most valuable moments in your day. The moment that you would want to pass up on being awakened and moving on towards. You are waking yourself up and sacrificially giving praise and thanksgiving to God. And that's going to change you. Right? That is going to not feed the flesh, which the snooze button is going to do. That's going to feed the spirit. And as the spirit grows more and more, the flesh is going to waste away in weakness. The spirit's going to grow in strength within you according to God's word. And as your spirit grows in maturity and the influence of the Holy Spirit is expanding in all areas of your life, waking up is going to be a little bit easier in the morning to give that time to God. 
And then your day is going to be more and more characterized by that which is declared in his word instead of that which you just naturally function in as a human being on this planet. So take time to pray for your good and for his glory. Number two, the Apostle Paul tells us, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So number two, pray with watchfulness and thanksgiving. Now, this idea of watchfulness is kind of strange, right? What does it mean to pray and watch? And some would say that this watchfulness is for like like end-time signs, right? So you think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is already talking about the end of the world coming and Jesus returning, and he says, pray, watch, and be alert, But I would just suggest that that idea of end times watchfulness, so watching for signs of the times, for Jesus' imminent return, that, that that is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. When your pastor gets to 1 Thessalonians, I'm sure he'll talk a little bit more about that there. But here, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel going forth. We'll see that in the following verses. The Apostle Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And then he begins to encourage the Christians in Colossae to be careful about the way that they talk and to have salty, gospel-centered conversations with people. So the context here is not about the end times, is not about the end of the world, Jesus' imminent return. The context here is about the gospel going forth. And whereas the Apostle Paul uses a word along with watchfulness, and that is being alert in 1 Thessalonians 5, he doesn't use that here. And that word for being alert in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is like a moral awareness. Like being on guard as you pray and recognizing the, the morality in the world, the moral landscape, the moral decay, and recognizing in prayer that that could mean that soon Jesus is returning. But here, the word watchfulness just stands alone in the context of prayer for the gospel. And the word really just refers to simple mental awareness, mental acuity, understanding what's going on in your family, in your spheres of influence, in the world in which you live, and letting your prayer life be characterized by that mental accuracy, by that mental awareness. But watchfulness, that type of watchfulness where we're looking in at what's going on in in the workplace, or with our family, or with the local government, or throughout the world, that kind of watchfulness can be kind of dangerous, right? The the Apostle Paul says it's important to be watchful so that you can actually pray in an informed way about the events and the difficulties of the day and the things that your family is going through. But it can be dangerous because oftentimes when we're watchful, what's really highlighted in our mind is all the bad stuff going on, right? If I asked everybody for a list of maybe like five tragedies that happened in the last month, we could just list it off like that, right? We could talk about the Orlando shooting. We could talk about the slain officers in Dallas. We could talk about what happened in Nice, France. We could talk about the two shootings of African American men, both in, in the North and in the South. And the list just goes on. And what happens when we're watchful like that and, and we're so tuned in to the affairs of the world, especially on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, is we have a natural tendency to just go to a dark place. To just, you know, allow our frustration to fester and to just cause us to go, where is God? Or, well, the end must obviously be near. I, I just need to hunker down and build my shelter and, and wait for the return. You know, we have, we, we lose our hopeful optimism 
in the ruling and reigning Christ at the right hand of the Father, who said, Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Who said that the kingdom of God is, is like a, a, a tree that begins as a seed, yet grows in its power and influence, and all the birds of the air rest in it. And he gives that as a picture of the kingdom of God expanding on earth. Right? And we can, we can lose that hopeful expectation. We can lose a missional impulse that recognizes that Jesus says that the gospel will go to all the nations and then he'll return. Right? So, so being hopeful about that and wanting to be on mission and give to missions and go overseas to unreached people groups. We can, we can go away from that and just kind of be like the, the angry, evangelical that's just mad at our political system and mad that our guns are being taken away and mad that the Supreme Court is is so liberal now. We can just let that weigh us down and characterize our speech and characterize the way that we walk. And so the Apostle Paul actually pairs watchfulness with thanksgiving as we pray. He says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving, right? So, so the idea is, is that healthy prayer is, sure, it's going to be aware of the situations that exist and characterized by a need for God to intervene in those situations, but we need to be thankful as we're watching. We need to recognize that God's on the throne and we need to take constant inventory in our prayer of what God has done to answer our prayer, to save our souls, So, both experientially, we just need to look at our experiences and look at the hand of God in our life and thank Him in prayer. But also biblically, we need to look at Scripture and see the promises of God and see the things that God has said and the things that God has given us like His Spirit implanted at the core of our soul so that we would actually desire to do good. So that we would actually have a compass for our life. And we need to look at those realities both experientially and biblically and thank God. You know, thankfulness in prayer recalibrates our heart. And it staves off that sort of broken hopelessness that comes from watching dire situations every day in the news, in our lives, with our friends and family, in the workplace. Richard Mellick, who is a biblical scholar, he says this, thankfulness is the environment for good praying. And it provides a safeguard for informed praying. Right? You're informed in your praying, but it's a safeguard because you're renewing your heart and mind about who God is. And you're thanking Him for it, and you're reminding yourself who is on the throne. Think about Paul in jail with Silas, right? So, Paul decides that he's going to take Silas on, on this evangelistic outreach. He's going to help disciple Silas and get him fired up about the mission of God. And they go out and here Silas on this discipleship, evangelistic outreach gets chucked in jail with Paul. Right? And Paul could totally be like, oh my gosh, my friends and family, and how's the mission going to go forth? And gosh, these, this situation with these rats and these feces on the ground and it's completely dark and I've got open wounds and there's bacteria everywhere. They wouldn't have called it bacteria back then, but they knew that it was bad for their wounds. And, and he could have just been in total dread. But instead, he goes, this is, a, this is part of the discipleship opportunity that I have with Silas. I'm going to show him to be thankful in prayer in difficult times. So they start singing hymns and psalms of praise to God. And in the midst of that, God intervenes and opens the jail. And a jailer comes running out. And the Apostle Paul and Silas get to preach the gospel not only to that jailer, but to his entire family. And they all come to Christ. Largely because Paul did not allow his circumstances and what he was seeing with his eyes to shape his thankfulness and praise to God. He recognized, regardless of what I see with my eyes, God is supreme in power. He is the sovereign ruler over all. And I need to show that to Silas. And that became one of the greatest discipleship evangelistic opportunities in human history. 
I'm pretty sure Silas was sold at that point and was willing to do anything because he saw the greatness and power of God. And that's what happens when we don't let our watchfulness weigh us down. But instead, we take those things to God and take an inventory of all the good that He has brought us experientially and biblically. It brings us back to a place where we go, yeah, God's powerful. And we can see His hand and we can have faith in Him and we can trust Him through the difficulties. I believe this is why David said in Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. He's saying, as you walk up to the temple, you guys need to be praising God. You need to be thanking God. You need to be lifting up his name. Because he's like, look, this sort of like solemn, dark, half-hearted gratitude towards God is not fit for his people, especially in his place of praise. So make sure you get your hearts right thanking Him and uplifting Him before you come into the temple. And this is a great example for how we should enter into our day. This is a great example for how we should enter into our time of fellowship together, making sure that we're allowing our hearts to be recalibrated by thankful prayer so that when we get together, we're not just that guy who overtakes our time by telling everybody how terrible things are. But you're saying, in light of these things, God is good. He's on the throne. He's sovereign in power. So people are being uplifted. And maybe they won't have to uplift you because you're praying properly, right? It's good that we have our brothers and sisters in Christ to do that. But if the remedy is simply having a thankful heart in prayer, how much better that we could just come together and say, you know what, here's what I'm going through and here's what I'm seeing, but isn't God great? And He's great in these ways. And let's not forget it in these difficult times. Lastly, in regards to how we're told to pray here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, is we're called to pray for gospel advancement. Pray for gospel advancement. He says in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us, that is the church planters, right? The ones who are out there planting these churches, that God may open to us a door for the word. So, so the first thing about gospel advancement Pray for open doors. God, would you open doors of influence in the city, amongst government officials, in the hearts of persons of peace, uh, influential governmental leaders, people working in businesses. Would you open a door for the word in that place so that it might spread? And then he says that the door would be opened uh, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And this one's hard for us sometimes, like the mystery of Christ. So is there some mystery about Jesus that we don't fully understand? But if you go back to Colossians 1, he talks about the mystery of Christ, and he says that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So it's this mystery that when we come into relationship with God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is placed in our hearts, at the center of who we are, that we become God's temple, and the core of our person is now the holy of holies for God so that he could begin influencing our hearts and shaping us to be more like Christ. And that's a mystery, right? We can't plot that out on a sheet of paper. But to be able to tell people this mystery and this hope that God can be with you in intimacy and help you grow and develop into the person that He has called you to be. That's what He wants to see happen throughout the cities that He's preaching the Gospel in. And that's what we should be praying about. That people's eyes and ears would be open. That their hearts would be captured by the reality that God doesn't just want people to believe in Him, but God is so good, He wants to dwell with people to help transform their lives. And that is a great message that Paul wants to make sure there is an open door to go forward. And he says that one of the ways that those doors open and the mystery is heard is through prayer. So then he says in verse 4 as how they should pray about the gospel going forth and people hearing the mystery of God is that he may make it clear. He says, pray that I might make it clear. And this is important, right? We don't want to make such an emphasis on clarity that it's like you need a degree and you need to be extremely articulate because the gospel is simple, right? But Paul's point 
is very similar to what he's said in other epistles. His point is simply, would I pray that I would be able to speak in such a way where people understand what the gospel's about, right? He says in other epistles, he says that he seeks to be all things to all people so that he might win some, right? That he seeks to be a a Jew to a Jew and a Gentile to a Gentile. He's wanting to contextualize the gospel. What, What does this truth of the gospel sound like to a Gentile? That doesn't mean changing the message. That doesn't mean watering down biblical ethics. It just simply means, how can I take the truth of the gospel and make sure that there are no stumbling blocks of understanding? So that in whatever culture I'm in, whatever type of person I'm in, they get the message. And I'll give you an example of this, of contextualizing the truths of the gospel based on the context that you're in. Back in the mid-20th century there was a missionary couple that felt called to go to an unreached people group in New Guinea. This tribe in New Guinea had never heard the gospel before, and they recognized that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, God's people are called to go to all nations, and there, all nations in Greek is pontata ethne. Ethne sounds like ethnic, right? Like ethnic people groups. So we're not talking about nation states, we're talking about individual ethnic people groups because the gospel can only spread rapidly in a people group. A people group is characterized by language and culture. All right, And language and culture are big walls, big barriers to the gospel going forth. So when Jesus says, go to all peoples, he is ensuring that the picture of Revelation where John sees in heaven that every uh, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are there praising God in heaven. Right? If it was nation states, we wouldn't be fulfilling that ultimate picture in Revelation. So, so here, this couple recognizes in the mid-20th century, God's calling us to go to all peoples, distinct languages and cultures. And they go to this people group in New Guinea, and they win the hearts of the people group so that they can stay with them, okay? The the people group, the chief of the people group, they do not respond to the gospel, but they say, hey, we kind of like you. We think that, that you're uh, a couple that's safe to welcome into our tribe. And this couple begins living with them. And uh, as the months go on, they're praying like, God... How do we, how do we get the gospel to them? Like, they've preached the gospel so many times to the chief and the elders and all of the people in this tribe, and they're not getting it. Like, why'd God die? Like, why did God take off his crown and come to earth as a poor man? Uh, what's this whole thing about the incarnation? Like, God becoming flesh, but, you know, God the Father's still up in heaven, and just all these mysteries and cultural differences that they couldn't understand. So they're praying for clarity, a way to communicate the gospel that doesn't water it down or change its message, but makes sense to their particular culture. And they're praying and they're praying and they're praying and they're praying, and people at home are praying for them. And a war breaks out between this tribe that they're ministering to and a neighboring tribe, and it becomes devastatingly bloody. People on both sides are dying. Elders of the tribes are dying. And so the missionary couple comes to the chief and they say, look, whatever you're fighting for isn't worth it. Your loved ones are dying. Their loved ones are dying. You have to seek peace. And the chief agreed. And so the the chief convened a meeting between both tribes. And the leaders of the tribes lined up facing each other. And the chief of this tribe that the missionaries were a part of walks over to his wife and grabs his newborn son and walks over to the other tribal chief and hands him his son. And the meeting is dismissed. And the missionary runs up to this chief and says, what did you just do? And he said, in our culture, when a war becomes so bad between neighboring tribes, the only way to assure that we are serious about peace and will not sneak up on them and attack them again, is for 
the leader of the tribe to give his firstborn son as a sacrifice to the other tribe to show how serious his peace would be. And the missionary said, let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) That son who is sacrificed to grab a hold of peace between God and man once again so that people could be forgiven and restored in their relationship with God. And those missionaries shared that story again. Now in that context, that's what God did. He gave His only Son as a sacrifice to allow there to be peace between God and man again. And it was because of that contextualization of the gospel that that entire tribe came to Christ, a church was formed, and the chief became the first elder of that new church. This is what Paul is talking about. When he says, pray that I might make it clear. It doesn't have to be grandiose or academic. He just wants to make sure that they will hear it and understand it for all of its glorious worth. So in this context of praying for the gospel to go forth, I think about a couple things. And first of all, that I'm a church planter, similar to Paul here, not with as much broad regional influence, but they're in West Lancaster. And we need your prayer. We know that God works through the prayers of His children. And as we're there working, we would ask that you would cry out to God on our behalf and pray that a door would be open to the Word so that we could declare the mystery of Christ in a way that's clear and understandable and rests on people's hearts in a transformational way. Would you please pray for us continually about that? But secondly, what I recognize is that a lack of prayer for gospel advancement is going to affect your heart. Just like having prayer for gospel advancement is going to affect your heart. And so this isn't just for the gospel to go forth. This is about your maturity as well, Christians. Because what I have seen is that a lack of prayer for gospel advancement, locally, regionally, nationally, globally, it shows where your heart is. It shows that that our hearts have not fully been touched and transformed by the great power of the gospel. Maybe they've been touched and transformed on a personal level, but, but we are not matured to a point yet. If we are not praying for gospel advancement consistently in our life, we are at a place where we have not fully grasped the immensity of gospel reform, the significance of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the reality of eternal punishment. And so it's a great way to just kind of take inventory of our lives and go, you know, man, I don't pray about that. I go, "Well, well, you know, the cool thing is, is that you're here. And God is loving and gracious. And you have an opportunity right now to turn around from that. And go, God, you know what? I want to have your heart. I want to rediscover the power of the gospel and how important it is to save souls from their eternal destination apart from God. So it it can show our hearts where they're at. But also a lack of prayer about gospel advancement can just stunt our growth. Right, Because whether you're passionate about the gospel going forth or not, Christians are called to be obedient to what God talks about, right? So, so he says here through the Apostle Paul, pray that the, the, a door would be open for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, right? So God is saying we should do this. So whether we're passionate about it or not, obedience means that we, we're going to do it, right? And when we're obedient about it, we begin to grow. Right? We go in prayer and we're praying for the lost and God begins to break our heart through that process. God begins to grow our heart to recognize like, man, my neighbor doesn't know Jesus and Jesus is good and he's impacted my life positively and my family positively and he's given me a hope and a future eternally. And so in that obedient prayer for the lost, God begins to open our eyes and God uses it to cause us to become more like him. Right? We start thinking about like, Man, there are people in Saudi Arabia who don't know the Lord. What about North Korea? Oh my gosh. 
Right? Like, none of us can get in there. How's the gospel going forth? Are there missionaries there that I could pray for, that I could give money to? So it stunts our growth when we have a lack of prayer for gospel advancement. But when we obediently begin to pray for gospel advancement, first of all, it shows that God is changing our heart. Look at this. God is changing my heart, and I am starting to actually be obedient in prayer. And it's a sign of your relationship with Him. But as I said previously, it develops our heart over time. It grows us. It stretches us. It opens our eyes to be like Jesus who looked over a multitude of people and had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So Christian, I conclude this time together by pleading with you to wake up, to take a look around and see what this world needs is Christ. Not necessarily a new leader in November. Not new laws according to the Supreme Court, although that would be good too. But they need Christ. And that minds won't change and laws won't change and your family isn't going to change unless their hearts are changed by Christ first. And as you wake up and you take a look around and you see that need, Also see that you've been called to deliver him in faith. The following verses are about that. How we should interact in our own local area with the gospel on our lips. You've been called as ambassadors to Christ to take his kingdom into this world. And so allow yourself to take a heart check right now. And ask if you're doing the type of watchfulness that just causes you to hunker down. If you haven't had thankful praise and prayer on your lips, if you've neglected your alone time and your prayer for gospel advancement, and allow yourself to come humbly before God, not to just establish a new ritual to feel better about yourself and your conscience, but to recognize that a great God has chosen to work through His children. And sometimes we become disconnected and our attitudes change. And we're not so much characterized by His Word and by His grace any longer, but just by what we're looking at and experiencing in this world. I'm going to bow my my head and my heart in prayer, and I would ask you to do the same. And as we pray, as I pray, I would ask you, if that's you, and, and some of this touches home, and you go, you know, prayer for gospel advancement has not characterized my heart. And thankfulness and praise to God in the morning has not characterized my life. Take an opportunity to repent and to come to God and go, Lord, I want to treat you like food. I want to treat you like water, like air. And reshape my life to bring you a sacrifice of praise every morning to ensure that you are glorified and that you're working through me in my life. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear a little bit about how we should pray. Not the whole picture, but in regards to watching in a sinful world and praying about your gospel going forth. Lord, I simply pray that this church would be characterized by ceaseless prayer a habit of prayer throughout their day, but also a sacrifice of prayer in the morning that recalibrates their heart, washes their mind clean, and helps them to be on mission with your spirit expanding in its influence in our life day by day. Lord, help them right now as they cry out and they repent and they say, God, I need to put this back at the center of my life. Lord, help them to just remember why they're doing it. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, you are better than any food that we could eat. Better than any sleep that we could experience. And even more than that, you've created food. You've created sleep. Why wouldn't we make sure that we seek you? Lord, help this church to be a church that is so characterized by prayer that it shows a dependency on you that is a great example for Ridgecrest. That other people would see, I need to cry out for God. I need to rely on Him. I need to trust in Him. 
And if that's you, anybody here at church, that you just go, my life has not been characterized by prayer, by thankfulness to God, by gospel advancement on my lips in prayer. If that's you, just take this opportunity right now to say, God, I'm sorry that I've wandered from that. Help me now. And make a commitment, Christian, in your heart right now that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and give the first fruits of your day to Him for His glory and for your good. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time. Do with it as you please. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jeff, for that word. We're going to sing a song, Good, Good Father. If you need prayer this morning, we have elders in the uh, dining hall uh, that would love to pray with you this morning. Um, so let's all stand and let's worship our Father who is so, so good to us. He is worth our time in coming to Him in prayer and worshiping Him.